Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. In this episode, rather than taking a deep dive in any specific product role, a la product management, design, or engineering, I'm actually joined by someone who's got experience in all three of those disciplines. That's author and startup advisor, Laura Klein. Today, Laura is the VP of product at Business Talent Group, makers of a platform to help connect the best consultants with freelance jobs. On the side, she's the principal at Users Now, where she helps teams build better products. And that not-so-simple task is precisely the title of her latest book, which Eric Reese calls Mandatory Reading for Anybody Making Product Decisions. Laura's also the author of UX for Lean Startups and co-host of a few podcasts of her own. You can catch her on What's Wrong with UX and Insplaining. The latter is all about how engineering and product can work better together, and it's that type of cross-team collaboration that became the foundation for our conversation. We talk about the problems that bubble up when different disciplines have competing priorities. In some organizations, a bit of a troubling split that I see, which is the product manager is in charge of the business and the UX person is a defender of the users. And then they have to battle it out in you know the octagon. Different methods and tactics that product teams can use to improve their collaboration. You need to figure out how we can all have shared goals on the team while still respecting people's desire to work in the way that they feel they work best. Why a well-functioning product team reminds Laura of her favorite movie genre. Think about your favorite heist team movie, right? It's a team that is comfortable working together, often, sometimes after some fighting. But generally speaking, by the time they're ready for the heist, there's a lot of trust there. And the reason that there's trust there is because everybody knows their stuff. If you enjoy my chat about product teams with Laura, this is now episode 118 of Inside Intercom. And that means there's plenty of back catalog for you to chew on to. Find all those episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you go for podcasts these days. And to make sure you're the first to get each new episode every Thursday, just subscribe or give us a follow. And with that, let's hop in the studio where I'm on the line with startup advisor, Laura Klein. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Laura, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I know between your, your podcasts, your writing, your speaking, your consulting, you've obviously got, got plenty on your plates. So we really appreciate you taking the time for us. Just to set things up today, uh, can you give us the cliff notes of your career to date and a little bit about what you're doing today with Users Know, Business Talent Group, et cetera? Yeah, um, I've been doing this for a very long time, since the mid-90s. Um, I started out I mean, I've done research, I've been an engineer, I've done user experience design, interaction design. Now I do sort of product management. I am the vice president of product of a company called Business Talent Group, and we help find really good freelance jobs for high-end consultants at very large companies. And so my whole job is to help take a project or take, take a company that was fairly analog and make them a little bit more digital. And uh, so I'm building a lot of internal tools right now for folks to to help them do their jobs more efficiently and help them scale. Awesome. Awesome. And somehow in between doing all those things over the last few years, you've managed to write two books as well. <laughs> well, the books took a little longer. The first one came out in 2013 and the, the last one, I guess the last one just came out in 2016. So, you know, I I like to write. I write pretty fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine when you're, when you're working with companies like these all the time, that's so uh, you've end up repeating so many of the same ideas over and over that 
not not that any book ever writes itself, but you, you've got a good <laughs> idea in mind of what you want to put on paper. Yeah. So the funniest thing is that Build Better Products, which is the more recent one, honestly came out of, I was doing a ton of consulting. I was working with a bunch of different companies and a bunch of different teams, all different sizes at all different size companies. And what I found was I would often be called in and I would often be asked the same questions. And I found myself leading these workshops many times and I would go up to the whiteboard and I would start to draw something because that's because I'm a UX designer. And if I don't at some point grab a Sharpie and start, you know, writing on sticky notes or go up to a whiteboard and start writing on it, hopefully not with the Sharpie. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I just, I lose my ability to call myself a UX designer. So I would go up to the whiteboard and I would start drawing these diagrams and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to do a map of this, or we're going to, you know, draw your funnel or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And after a few, I just found I was drawing the same thing over and over and over. It was like the same I was running and I I started developing these exercises. And so then I would start to go in and I would, you know, just do a workshop where I would just do the exercises and we would go through them. And um, so a lot of the book is actually made up of exercises and activities that came out of just being in rooms with teams that all had very similar problems and had very similar activities that we could go through in order to solve those problems. What are a few of, of those most common problems that, that you kept running into? Can you illustrate a few of those for our listeners? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so they were in several different sections, and some of them are going to sound really familiar um, if you do UX design. Some of them were, were kind of my own thing, or you know, I put my own twist on them. Uh, one of the things that people often asked about were metrics, you know, and helping people figure out what metrics they should actually care about. And so going through and helping them, you know, figure out what does the funnel look like for this particular feature? What is the behavior that you're trying to create? What are the steps that people are going to go through? How do we you know, measure to make sure that people are doing the things that we want them to do in the way that we want them to do it and you know, that they're happy? So, I mean, there's, there's stuff like that. And then there was also one, oh, the, the, I think probably the most common one and the one that I use all the time and it's so easy for folks to do is uh, one that I call backing out. Uh-huh. And what it is, is somebody comes to you. <laughs> Let's say, for example, your CEO comes to you and says, we need to build this feature. It's going to be great. Oh, right? awesome. It's yeah, everyone, lo- everyone loves that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let me know if any of this is sounding familiar. <laughs> so we're going to build this feature. And there's this really hard conversation that you have to have, especially if it is your CEO or somebody important. Where if you're a product manager, you need to say no sometimes, <laughs> but really maybe not sometimes, most wanted, of the time. But yeah, yeah, maybe pretty much all of the time. That's our job, right? You know, like I'm just gonna chase you away from the engineers now. Um, but what I have found is that doing an exercise specifically where we back out what they're trying to get from that feature. So somebody says like, you know, I really want, I have to have this feature. Really, let's talk about that. What, from a business perspective, are you hoping to get out of this feature? Right. And you try to get them down to sort of a specific what is this going to do for the business and what is this going to do for the user? How do you see this helping our users reach their goals in a way that is, you know, helpful to everybody involved, helpful to them, helpful to us? And um, hopefully you can get them just to the point where it's like, well, you know, I just I really feel like this is going to increase retention for this particular segment of users. Okay, great. Let's sit down and generate a bunch of other feature ideas that could potentially do the same thing. And then suddenly we have an array of options that we can look at and take to engineering and and 
talk through and figure out which one of these most effectively does the thing that we want to do in the most efficient way. The other thing it lets us do, (laughs) this is a little tricky, is it lets us say, yeah, you know, you're right. That does really help us increase retention among this certain group of users. You know, retention among that certain group of users is currently at about, you know, 112 percent so maybe maybe let's focus somewhere else that's that's not our top priority right this second it's i mean it's a great feature but if the only thing that it does is improve this metric that is already great you know we've got this other metric over here that is garbage that is right now currently actually on fire we're actually working on some stuff around that so it just helps you put the conversation more into a place where we can all discuss the merits of the feature in a more objective way. So it doesn't turn into a, we have to do this. No, we can't do that. And it doesn't turn into you saying, oh, we can't do that because we don't have the resources. Because really the answer may be, we shouldn't do that because it's the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. Or because there's this other thing that we could do that's much better. Um, So I have a bunch of sort of prioritization activities like that one. Um, I have another activity for helping you figure out the actual complexity of a feature, which is always a tricky right. thing for people <laughs> to do, um, where it's sort of like, oh, we should do this thing. Great. That could either be a week or six months. Yeah, there's no, there's no such thing as it. an easy change. It doesn't exist. Right, exactly. They're like, how long would it take to put this in? It depends. And it, it gives you something to say after it depends. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like a lot of, of what you were saying there is that this really all comes back to setting the right goals early on and making sure that everyone is, is aligned on that. And not just the end goal, but I mean, the business goal that you're setting out to solve. Is that something with a lot of the companies that you work with that or designers that you work with that they tend to to overlook that part? Or is it just a matter of not setting the, the right goals early on? I, all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I see all of those things. Uh, and I see them actually in a little bit different ways. Um, sometimes, you know, the companies that are very, what I would call idea focused that, oh, I've got this great idea. They aren't coming at it from a, what user problem are we going to solve? What metric do we want to, you know, they're, they're not approaching it from that direction. They're just approaching it from, oh, there's this cool thing that I want to build. In which case, you know, success is, oh, look, I built this cool thing. And then, they're shocked when nobody wants to use it. With designers explicitly, I have found that there is sometimes in some organizations a bit of a troubling split that I see, which is the product manager is in charge of the business and the UX person is a defender of the users. Mm-hmm. And then they have to battle it out in you know the octagon. And I personally don't like that approach at all. I think that we all should understand and care about both the business and the users. Right. Maybe not a hundred percent. Maybe not, maybe that's not my specific focus. And I never want UX designers to care so much about the business that they, you know, use dark patterns or they trick users. That's not okay either. Right. But I also don't want product managers to push for that. I don't want it to be an adversarial relationship is sort of my point. I want it to be we understand what the business goals are. And hopefully, honestly, you know, from, you know, upper management is giving us business goals to hit. They're not giving us features to build, Mm -hmm. you know, as a product team, we don't want to just, I don't want to just draw the thing that's in your head. That's not interesting or challenging or 
making use of my particular talents, right? I want to be given a goal to hit, and then I want to be given the freedom to work with the rest of my team to figure out the best way to hit that goal by understanding what the user needs are, understanding what current behaviors are, how might we change those behaviors, that sort of thing. So that's, yeah, I do get a little frustrated with designers and researchers that I have seen who are a little, oh, I don't care about, I don't need to care about the business. I'm you know, I'm the defender of the user. It's like, well, that's great. But also you're being paid by the business. So let's maybe make good decisions for all of us. Yeah, definitely. And how do you, what's your advice in terms of finding that balance? Because I've, I've had designers on the show before who have said that, that they also see a world today where at some businesses, the people who are viewed as the more senior designers are the ones who are putting business first. And there's a really positive feedback loop that rewards that. And some sense that like maybe the the user is getting lost in that, like it's been tilted too far Mm -hmm. the other way as well. So where do you find that balance? I mean, you don't really need to choose, right? I don't think you do. I think that we should always be looking whenever possible. We should be looking for win-win scenarios first. Every so often you're going to have to go one way or the other. And I am actually a fan of thinking about it in the long term. I think sometimes what happens is when we think about things too much from the the business and the user are in conflict, or we're thinking about it that, you know, if it's a business decision, then it's going to be bad for the user. That's just a bad place to be. Maybe that means that your business model is all screwed up, right? I mean, if, if and, and I think we're seeing a little bit of that today yeah. uh, in, a, in a few companies, but if you're not actually offering value to your end user, then that's a problem in itself. So I feel like making things better for the end user should always turn into a good business decision at some point. You do occasionally obviously have some trade-offs in terms of, you know, especially when you're dealing with things like tech debt, it can be, you know, you can, you can run into things where it's like, well, I, I really, I personally, as a product manager, like to always pay down tech debt sort of as we go right? I don't like to build up a ton of it. I like to always include some time in every sprint to take care of things like bugs and take care of things like upgrades and that sort of thing. I don't like to let that build up, but it can be a little bit hard to sort of justify that in terms of what is the actual end benefit to the user, uh, you know, to do things. But, but I think it does. I mean, I, I think that you can always sort of make that connection. You can say, well, well, it lets us, you know, release faster, or it keeps us from having to rewrite the whole thing six months from now and not release anything. So it's rare that you should ever build anything that doesn't have any value for the user. I will say this, sometimes you do have to pick between users. That is a hard choice to make because mm-hmm. not everything you do will help every single user of your product. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. 
We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. You mentioned all the all these different points of view, right? That there's there's research, there's design, there's the engineer's point of view, there's the product manager's point of view, and everyone's trying to empathize with one another and meet in the middle. When you parachute into the businesses that you're working with, how do you sort of take stock of, of the team dynamics and, and build rapport there? Well, it's interesting because um, right, I mean, right now I am working full-time or mostly full-time on my own team at mm-hmm. Business Talent Group. I do a tiny bit of coaching and training outside of that, but other times I do consult and coach. And I like to talk to everybody on the team and understand their points of view and understand what they're struggling with because uh, you don't ever want to just assume anything about, you know, well, the engineers work this way. You know, like I've worked with, I've been an engineer. I've worked on a lot of engineering teams. I've worked with a lot of engineering teams. They're, you know, just, they're just like us. They're just humans and they (laughs) all want to work kind of different ways. And some of them are really excited to be involved in certain kinds of decisions. And some of them (laughs) really don't want to hear about it. And you need to figure out how we can all have shared goals on the team while still respecting people's desire to work in the way that they feel they work best. I think that that's the the best thing and that you need to make sure that the kinds of decisions that are getting made by engineering and the kinds of decisions that are getting made by design and all that, that those make sense, that the right people are making the right calls and that everybody has as much input as they need to have and that they want to have, but that the decisions are actually getting made by the right people. And I think that's often a problem. And it's very difficult in large organizations often because, you know, there's a there can be a whole bunch of layers of management above you that really do get to swoop in and say, nope, you're doing it this other way. But in the ideal world that I am trying to create where we have somewhat <laughs> autonomous teams, you know, that the upper management is coming in and saying, these are your goals, go hit them. And that we're all working together to figure out the right way to hit those goals. Yeah, and all, and all leaning on on each person's strengths as well, and and letting yeah. people work the way that they need to work best, so that people can collaborate. But also, when the engineer needs time to figure out where the bug is in the code, that we leave them alone as well. Yes, and this is this is actually one of the things that I have run across is that I'm a huge fan of cross functional teams. I'm a huge fan of being collaborative. I I never want people to think that. I mean, and I worked in the days of waterfall. I get it. I get throwing the 400 page spec over the wall to the engineers. And I'll tell you, I know all the reasons it doesn't work. And I don't want to go back to that. I will also say that I think that I have seen some teams that kind of go the other way where they feel like collaborative means that every single person on the team does every single thing (laughs) together. And that's a nightmare, right? Like we don't all have to be in a six hour meeting where we try to get 15 people to collaboratively design a comments section. Like, why would we do that? That's, that's not a good use of anybody's time. Right. 
that's that's not that's not what collaborative means. Um, there are still people who are specialists in certain areas, and they should they should be in charge of getting feedback and input from the correct people, and they should also be in charge of making the calls on certain things. And that's not always the same person. I don't. I also don't think that it's always you know the the product managers, you know, the, the one throat to choke in, right. in Agile. I don't think that it's always that person, you know, who has to make every single call, but I think that somebody has to be in charge. And, you know, a lot of times it's the tech lead, right? Who's, they're making the technical decisions. I, I'm a big fan of figuring out what people are good at and giving them responsibility and authority in those areas and, you know, bringing people up who maybe are more junior and giving them sort of smaller decisions that they get to make. And really, when it comes down to it, every single person on a team is making a million decisions a week, yep. you know, at, at the sort of micro level. So just scaling that up a little bit and giving people a little bit of rope, I think, is is probably a, a good thing, generally speaking. Um, but it's hard. I mean, and it's it makes it much harder than if I just got to dictate everything that happened. Yeah, that, that's, you know? this is the world of continuous deployment, I think. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, you're you're giving a lot of people a lot of power to ship something to people and you just have to make sure that that's I mean, and that's one of the reasons that it's so important to make sure that people have the information that they need to make good decisions and that they know what the the actual goal is, that their their view of the world, especially the engineers, that their view of the world is not just the next ticket. You know, that they understand what the overall thing is that we're doing and why and who the user is. Yeah, absolutely. And and you have a great metaphor for what makes a happy, well-functioning product team. You, you use the concept of almost an Ocean's Eleven style heist team. Can you expand upon that a little bit? I mean, how, how do those two concepts really relate? I, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be perfectly honest. I just love heist movies. <laughs> and I did a talk on this and this was an excuse to watch a bunch of heist movies. Well done. Uh, I also considered doing it as a basketball team because... I'm also a huge basketball fan. So those were my two options. I went with the heist team because, you know, I didn't want to jinx my team. Um, <laughs> the, the, the Warriors were on a roll. You didn't want to mess with it? Yeah, that's actually exactly what happened. <laughs> it was like the middle of, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be doing this talk right in the middle of finals and I right in the middle of the finals and I don't want to jinx them. So um, Yeah, you know, plus, I, I mean, kind of people, people might take offense to who's the Kevin Durant versus who's the Draymond Green. It gets too opinionated. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to get into that. Um, I mean, let's be perfectly clear. I would go into that for hours with you, but I, I also like the heist team thing. Okay, so but think about your favorite heist team movie, right? You have the leader, right, who's getting the gang back together for the one big last heist after which they're all going to get to retire to the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, always happens, right? So they get the team, and it's a team of specialists, and it's a team of experts, and it's a team that is comfortable working together often sometimes after some fighting. But generally speaking, by the time they're ready for the heist, there's a lot of trust there. And the reason that there's trust there is because everybody knows their stuff, right? And you got the leader, and the leader doesn't necessarily know how to crack a safe or how to break into the the alarm system or how to drive a getaway car. What the leader knows is how to pick the goal and the target and say, okay, this is the bank. This is when we're hitting it. This is why we're hitting it. And there's always some, you know, elaborate, well, this is when the trucks come and right. I, like, but you know, all the why, mm-hmm. you know, why this is the right target right now and why this has to happen and what the deadline is. And then people kind of go off and they do some of their own stuff, but there's a lot of collaboration there too, because sometimes you need to make sure that, you know, 
the safe cracker is talking to the explosives expert because maybe the safe cracker needs some explosives to get into the safe. So you're working together, but really, when it comes down to who's gonna crack the safe, we're not all doing it together. There's one person, they are in charge, they get it done. So there's a lot of discussion and planning, and of course, it's not as iterative unless it's a the kind of team that does a lot of bank heists, but <laughs> unless, totally unless you're different... on uh, Fast and Furious Nine, then maybe you've worked it up. By <laughs> there then. you go. See, see, if you get a sequel, then you've got iterations, and then you can make it better. So by Ocean's Twelve and Ocean's Thirteen, they should have gotten much better at it. Um, <laughs> anyway, again, this is it's it's not a perfect analogy, but I really do. Whenever I'm looking for a team that I would actually want to join, it tends to be a team of people who are. I wouldn't say necessarily just specialists, but they're they're really good at the thing that they do, and they have a lot of respect for the things that the other people do, and they basically understand what the other people do. They can give input, but they know that that's where it ends. Like, I can give input on the database schema if I want to, or if I have a strong opinion, but the CTO or the tech lead makes that final call. So I'm curious, when it comes to this type of cross-functional collaboration that we've been talking about here, how is that complicated by the rise of like fully remote teams? Can a remote product team succeed in this way? And if so, what do they need to do? How do you feel about that? Well, I'm glad you asked because my CTO <laughs> currently lives in Hawaii. My Some of my engineers are in Panama. I have a product manager in San Francisco. I'm in Silicon Valley. So I have a bunch of stakeholders in various parts of the country, um, occasionally parts of the world. I occasionally have people who I have had a visual designer check in with me from Myanmar. Good luck with time zones was, there. Where, where she was traveling. Yeah, no, really like the hardest thing to, to work out was like the fact that she was in the future sometimes. Like when she was in New Zealand, <laughs> the, the, the hardest thing to, to figure out was, okay, what day is Wednesday? Yep. I forget. So that's what we do. We do it all remote. Um, I have strong opinions about that, that uh, I am happy to change if I experience something different. I feel like all remote teams work better than partially remote teams. Mm -hmm. I think, for example, having you know a bunch of decision makers in a room together and having one or two remote people can be really difficult because those one or two people can really get left out of discussions it might be okay if it's, you know, you know, some of the engineers are sitting together and they can pair and that kind of thing. But really, I think that having more people remote and behaving as if everybody is remote is the best way to go if you're going to have some people remote. Because the thing that worries me the most about remote teams is that you get three or four people into a room, they're chatting, they start making decisions, they sort of move on without the rest of the team, and then the rest of the team gets left behind. Right. Because they weren't there for that conversation. Right. And there's not a level uh, playing field there, too, in terms of, of building rapport and confidence and trust, I think, as well, if if you're in that mixed variable field that you're you're describing there. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that it's interesting because I think that there are a lot of tools now that you can use that make it a little easier to, to share information, you know. So I'm a big fan of leveraging all the technology. I'm going to be honest, it is harder. It is. I mean, I have done. I have done this where we are all literally sitting in the same office, and I have done this where we are sitting all over the world and a bunch of mixes of them. And all remote has its own challenges. Like I said, my my whole company is sort of spread out all over the country, and we are often remote. 
right? Mm -hmm. Everybody is remote in some cases and it's harder. It's harder to build that trust. It's harder to know what's going on. It's harder to get involved and just remember that you're supposed to loop in somebody from, you know, customer service or you're supposed to loop in legal. I never forget to loop in legal. Um, they will, cause they will remind that's a, you. That's a lesson you can learn the hard way too. <laughs> yes, that is. Boy, that's not a thing you want to do a bunch of times. Um, but, uh, you know, just knowing who everybody is, is, is tougher and there, there are challenges, but I, I think lots of companies are doing that now just cause we have to. So whether we can, you can take this any direction you want, whether it's a world where I'm in, uh, Myanmar and, and you're in here in the Bay or uh, you and I are sitting across the table along with uh, our whole engineering team. What are some sort of quick takeaways or tips our listeners can take home with them as far as ways to maybe take stock in their team's collaboration or potentially improve it? Is there anything that you recommend? <laughs> There's, I mean, there are a bunch of fun, fun for some <laughs> values of fun <laughs> things that you can do. Uh, you know, I think an interesting thing for designers to do is to ask engineers who they think the user is to describe the user mm -hmm. of a particular feature, right? You can kind of calibrate. In fact, there's a, an exercise in the book called the user map, in fact, where I have sort of 16 questions that teams should know the answers to about their end user. Nobody ever knows the answer to all 16, <laughs> by the way. It's like, I always feel like I'm setting people up to fail a little bit. And, and, that, and everyone should have the same answer? Is that? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather people... I'd rather certain people not have some of the answers mm -hmm. than have people all have different ones, if that makes sense. Right. So there are yeah, questions absolutely. in there about like, you know, how does this improve the user's lives? Right. And I'd rather have somebody just leave that blank and say, I don't know, rather than have everybody come back with a totally different answer, because the first one's really easy to fix. <laughs> the second one is much, much harder. So having people fill out something like, or having people do just a lightweight persona of their own, uh, where you just have people say sort of, you know, like, who is our user? What, what do they do? What are they trying to do? What are their goals? What are their behaviors? How are they using our product? Just to understand what everybody's baseline understanding of the users is. And then I think that there are a bunch of activities that you can do together to help you know, decide things like for this particular feature, who are we building this for and what do we hope to get? And then just making sure that everybody is on board, that not just this is the ticket that you're going to fill, or this is the onboarding flow that you're going to design, or this is the feature that you need to write a spec for. It's not that it's, this is the goal we're trying to hit for this person and here's why and we should all have the same answer to that question this is the bank we're gonna hit and this is why thursday at three is the right time to do it <laughs> i think that is a a great place for uh for us to leave this today laura thanks so much for joining us just to close out where uh where can our listeners go to keep up with what's new with you find your books and podcasts and all sorts of other great things like that uh, I, there is the very rarely updated uh, usersknow.com. That's usersknow, K-N-O-W. And um, all of the, the links to my book are on there. Uh, the links to my podcasts are on there. And um, the podcast is currently on hiatus, but we'll be starting up again later this summer. And uh, I occasionally write something there. Cool. Well, we'll, 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 in my spare time. We'll keep our, uh, keep our eyes and ears out. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. 
You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.